1: Thank you, Sid, and thank you all for joining us today for Messianic Vision. Our guest is a missionary evangelist who succeeded world-renowned minister Reinhard Bonnke as the president and CEO of Christ for All Nations, and I know some of you know it as CFAN. From a child, he was called to missions and now holds large-scale meetings worldwide, I mean all around the world, to preach the gospel of Jesus. And much of their work is done in regions where occultists and witch doctors, the demonic, just seem to come with the territory. With us today is evangelist Daniel Kalinda. Hi, Daniel.
2: Hi, Donna. How are you?
1: I'm well. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Daniel, you've written a brand new book called Slaying Dragons. Tell us why you wrote this particular book, and tell us about that title.
2: Well, uh, you know, Donna, I've grown up in the the church world. I'm a fifth-generation pastor's kid on my father's side. My mother's father was also a pastor. My wife's father also a pastor. So, you know, I've been around the the Christian world and more specifically the charismatic world, the Pentecostal world my whole life. And one of the things I've I've seen is that uh, spiritual warfare, angels, demons, you know, the breaking of bondages, deliverance ministry, all these things have sort of been relegated to a category of super weird sometimes superstitious, that people are sort of in the dark about, and they they leave it to people that have a specialty in that area. And one of the things that I've seen, because as you mentioned, I'm an evangelist around the world in these third world countries. I work primarily in Africa and deal with spiritual warfare all the time in a very practical way. And you know, I've had guests come with me to Africa and and, um, they've seen and experienced the things that are my daily life. And they tell me afterwards, they're having nightmares and they're you know, struggling in all these ways. And I I thought, you know, the American church specifically really doesn't understand a lot of things about spiritual warfare. It is not some strange thing for weird charismatics. In fact, this is in the scripture, the apostle Paul says that our fight is primarily not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. So The Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers frame our entire Christian lives within this struggle against these unseen forces, and yet so many Christians just really lack the basic understanding of how they should fight that battle. And so I wrote this book because, if I can be quite honest, I read a lot of books on spiritual warfare through my life, and a lot of the things I read sounded to me more like Harry Potter than the Bible. And I thought, you know, I want to write something that's theologically sound, number one. It's not just a bunch of fantasies, not just a bunch of concepts, ideas, more mythology uh, than, than reality. So I want to write something that's theologically sound but also practically helpful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing to know that you're in this battle. It's another thing altogether to understand how you're supposed to fight and how you're supposed to live your life in that context. And so that was really my objective, and I've got a lot of great feedback so far.
1: Yes, and I found that to be true when I was reading it. We read every single book that comes through here. A couple of us read these books before we even invite a guest to be with us, and I found that to be very true, that theologically, I was, I was just blown away with the information that was in it, and, and it was so helpful and practical. So I, I found that to be exactly true. I, I want to start off with a little example here of what you're talking about, Daniel. I know you were in West Africa doing what you do, and what happened?
2: Well, I mean, there's when you asked what happened, there's a lot of things that I could Yes. <laughs> I think you're referring to a specific story that I mentioned in the book about a, a witch doctor. This was a pretty interesting one because witch doctors come to almost every meeting that we have, many of them just out of sheer curiosity. And I've seen many, many witch doctors over the years get saved. Many of them bring their talismans and fetishes and um, idols. We call them juju. It's just sort of a generic term for all of that witchcraft paraphernalia. Many times I've seen them bring it, sometimes by the truckload, in, in the back of pickup trucks, and we'll burn it right there on the field, and these people get saved Many times years later, we discover that they are preaching the gospel and they're pastors now. So this is something that's sort of um, normal for me. But this particular uh, situation was unusual because, um, of course, the backstory to this I learned later. But this particular witch doctor that came to the meeting one night, she was was a woman, and she was a black magic witch doctor. Now, I know that sounds funny to Westerners because we probably think it's all black, but— from their perspective, there is a, there is good and there's bad magic. There are good and bad witch doctors. Well, this, even by the occultic standards of the people that practiced voodoo in that region, she was a bad one. And one of the pastors told me, he said, I know of 10 people that were killed by her through her putting spells on them. Two of them were relatives of hers. Now, I know that, again, people listening to this might not believe this, but this is the, the world that, that I live in, in Africa, and many, many people around the world uh, consider this just normal reality. And so um, this woman had come to the meeting to put a curse on me and kill me. Now, if you're wondering why a woman would want to put a curse on me and kill me, well, it's pretty simple. We're really bad for their business because uh, when we come to, to a town with our gospel crusades, we preach Jesus. We preach freedom from these curses. We break these curses in Jesus' name. Many, many times in, in, during a crusade, I will stand up one night after I've preached uh, about breaking curses. Usually I've preached about the blood of Jesus. I'll stand up behind the pulpit with a list that I've gotten from local pastors who have gone and done all the research. Mm-hmm. And it has the names of all the local curses and all the local deities in the native languages. These are things that, again, Westerners might not understand the significance of this, but some of these deities, some of these curses, some of these demons, really, they know them by name and they've known them by name for generations. Witch doctors and shamans have used these things to bind the people in fear. They, um, they will sometimes wear talismans around their necks or somewhere on their body. The witch doctor said to them, If you ever take this off, you'll die. It, they use it for uh, a means of fear and control over the people. And then when we come, I will sometimes literally cut these talismans off people's bodies in front of the crowd just so that they can see the person didn't die and that that demonic curse has no power over them. The people will go crazy, will burn all these idols. It's like it's like something out of the book of acts.
1: So you just confront it right away, right from the platform.
2: Yeah, so this is we're we're confronting these things all the time without fear and without hesitation. So anyways, with that backdrop, it's probably not difficult to understand why these witch doctors hate us. We exactly do business wherever we go. So this lady came to the, the meeting to curse me. She was standing off to my right hand side, down in the front. I was unaware of her presence while I was preaching. But she picked the wrong night to come because I was preaching on the blood of Jesus. Uh oh. And um, she was getting ready to hurl that curse at me. Whatever they do with her fetishes, her charms, and suddenly this is when I became aware that she was in the crowd. I heard this blood-curdling scream. I look over to my right-hand side, and there's this woman writhing on the ground like a snake, foaming at the mouth. And, um, you know, I have half a million people in front of me. I'm not going to stop and address that. You know, I've said many times, we, we spend a lot of money and a lot of effort to get to that place to set up that platform. I'm not giving my platform to the devil. He needs to go get his own platform. So we have ushers. We have pastors that are trained to handle these demonic uh, things. So they pull the lady out, and we have a, a tent behind the platform. We call it the Snake Pit, and that's where we do all of our exorcisms.
1: Whoa!
2: Right back there, the the local pastors. It wasn't even the evangelist. You know, it wasn't the guy on the platform. It was local pastors, many of them pastors of small churches, casted the demon out of this woman, the demons out of this woman. She came to her right mind. They led her uh, to Jesus, and then they brought her to me on the platform. By this time, I'd finished preaching. And um, uh, they said, you need to let this woman share her testimony. So in front of that whole crowd of about half a million people, she shared her testimony. And the moment they saw her, the people began to gasp and talk. You could tell this woman was very, very well known in the region. And she gave her testimony, what had happened to her, how she had come to the meeting to kill me. And then the very last thing she said was, I came here tonight to kill you, but instead of killing you, I have become a Christian because— I have learned tonight that your Jesus is more powerful than my witchcraft. Wow. Exploded. And what a statement that was to the whole region that Jesus is Lord.
1: Yes. And that's the reality that you live in, Daniel. That's what I have heard you say. This is, this is my reality. And, I, oh, I love this when you were saying It wasn't you that took the woman and cast out the demon. It was those local pastors that are learning this and that are being taught and trained how to do this. And that is why you say that about this book. It's it's theologically sound and practically useful. So, wow. That is amazing. Uh, and there was another one. I just want to put this in here real quick before we move on. Uh, you were talking about your <laughs> this one, you're bad for their business, of course. And there was a witch doctor also who had something about some stones or whatever that people would actually stand on and they would speak to them.
2: Yeah, well, that, that's another example of of one of the many examples of why we're bad for their business. If this one local witch doctor came to us and he was furious because he said his business was that you know people would come to him, they would pay money, and then he had these stones, these mm-hmm. magical stones, I put that in inverted commas, and the people would stand on these stones and they would hear what they believed to be the voices of their dead ancestors. Now, we know that these are called familiar spirits, these are demons, these are not their ancestors talking. However, the people were convinced that that's what was happening and the witch doctor was making a lot of money on it. Well... When we came in for our crusade, one of the things that we do, like I mentioned earlier, we break the power of these demon spirits in the region in Jesus' name. We take authority over them. We declare that these things will no longer work. And so the witch doctor came to us upset. He was mad at us because he said, my stones don't speak anymore. And he blamed it on us, and he blamed it on the crusade. And I think uh, that was the right thing.
1: Of course. And if the stones don't speak anymore, the people don't come and pay him their money.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: That's right. That's right. Well, Daniel, it's easy to see why you need to know about spiritual warfare. But but you have said that this is not just something you need to know about. This is something that all believers need to know.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, I want to just emphasize this. You mentioned how we train the local pastors to cast out demons. And in the book, I have a chapter about casting out demons. But you read the, the book, and you know this the book is really not about how to do exorcisms. Um, There are other books for that, and, and there's other people that know a lot more about that than me. For me, spiritual warfare is a lot more than just confronting demons in demonized people. The primary battle is fought between the ears, and it's fought within the hearts and souls of men and women. That's why Jesus died on the cross. It wasn't for land or territory. It was for the hearts of men and women. And so Every Christian, and indeed every person, even if they're not aware of it, is engaged in the spiritual war, and it's very important that we understand. The Bible says that we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices, and there's a good reason for that, because if we are ignorant of his devices, it will give our enemy an advantage over us. So that's why I want to write this, not just for the people that are involved in deliverance ministry, but for every Christian that they can be victorious against the dragons, if you will, in their own lives.
1: Yes, and and that's a bit more subtle, isn't it? Something that goes on, as you called it, between our ears in our in our minds and and within us. That's a bit more subtle. So some people may not look at it like that, unless they had this type of information.
2: Yeah, well, it's it is subtle, but I think it plays out in very dramatic ways. Um, very often, people are sick in their bodies. They have children that are. Uh, you know, not serving the Lord, they're struggling with dark thoughts, with addictions, with all kinds of uh, situations in their lives that they understand, even on a gut level, this is something that's beyond the natural. And the the question is just, how? Do, what do I do about it? Many people will just pray, and maybe they'll plead the blood of Jesus, or you know, they'll they'll try their best, they'll read the Bible, but they don't understand there are some really clear principles in Scripture for how to win those wars on the inside of us, and that's what I'm trying to teach.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. And this, this is something that is not new. I mean, this started way back in the Garden of Eden, uh, the serpent, the dragon there. So talk to us a little bit about that. And I know you also wanted to talk about dominion.
2: Yeah, well, you're right. This does start in the Garden of Eden. And, um, you know, you used a word I thought it was interesting. You said that this battle is subtle, it's more subtle, And that's exactly the word that's used in Genesis when when it talks about the serpent. It says that he was more subtle than any other beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he comes to Eve, and every Christian knows the story. He he tempts Eve. She eats the forbidden fruit. A lot of people say it was an apple. There's no indication it was an apple. It was just some kind of forbidden fruit. And then this act plunges the human race into darkness. And a lot of people, even if they're not going to say this, they stand back and go, how did eating a piece of fruit in the garden plunge the entire human race into darkness? That just doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And what you have to realize is that there's more going on than meets the eye. Because what Satan did, and I I don't have time to get into it point by point, but if you read that scripture of the original temptation, it's in Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that what was actually happening here was that Satan was passing on to Eve and then to Adam as well, a demonic way of thinking. It was a pattern of thinking that has continued to haunt the human race ever since. And this is this is literally what we deal with today. So like for example in first John it talks about the spirit of the Antichrist, which is already in the world. Um second Corinthians talks about the God of the world that has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Romans eight talks about the carnal mind that is at enmity or is it's at It's at odds with God, subject to the law of God, nor can be. And there's all these scriptures that tell us that basically what has happened to humanity is that we have become, we've been deceived. And that deception is so deep that it literally changes the way that we think, and the way that we think influences our behavior. And out of that comes every kind of evil, every kind of suffering, every kind of darkness, every rape, every genocide, every murder every bit of hatred can all be traced back to this one deception where Satan passed on his way of thinking. And so um, it's about the mind. The, the battlefield of the mind is critical. You see this very interesting exchange with Jesus and Peter that I mentioned several times in the book because I think it's, it's just so telling where, you know, they, they've just gone to Caesarea Philippi and Peter has declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of God, And Jesus said, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, for my Father in heaven. And then Jesus begins to talk to them about the fact that he's going to go and suffer and die on the cross. Peter contradicts Jesus and says, Lord, this is never going to happen to you. You can almost almost tell Peter's getting kind Mm -hmm. of—he had a really big revelation, and now he's actually correcting Jesus himself. And Jesus turns around to him in this moment and rebukes him, and listen to what he says. Get behind me, Satan. Yes, For you are not thinking as God thinks, you are thinking as man thinks. And so you see something very critical in this exchange. Number one, the way that man thinks is contrary to the way that God thinks. That's obvious. But why is it contrary? It's not just that it's other than the way that God thinks. Jesus calls Peter Satan. What he's literally saying is you are thinking the way Satan thinks. And by implication, man, fallen man in its unregenerate condition, has been duped to such an extent that we literally think like the devil. And this is why we have to be born again, because unless we're born again, even the very thoughts that we think are demonic in nature, it's not just that they are not godly. It's not just that they are not perfect. They are demonic. And that's why that thing has to be completely transformed from the inside out. And that is really what spiritual warfare is about, is changing the mind.
1: Yes, yes. Yes. And here's something else that goes right along with that, that just follows that, that I loved in your book. Satan has no real power in this world except what we, and you call us the gatekeepers, give to him. And you call that, Daniel, divine partnership.
2: Yes. This was something that hit me as a revelation when I was a teenager, and it it really dramatically influenced the way that I see the world. In fact, a lot of the, the, the breakthroughs and the spiritual victories that I've had, I, I actually attribute to this revelation, and I give it in the book. It's way more complex and deep than I can go into right now, but basically, here's the bottom line. Man was created as the gatekeepers for this planet. If you look in Genesis and you read, you see God giving dominion to man, so, so do the earth, fill it, take dominion over it. He brings the animals to Adam, name the animals. You see this over and over and over again. The Bible tells us very clearly that the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. So what that means is, when God gives a calling, He doesn't take that calling back. You see that with the with the Jewish nation. This is one of the reasons we don't believe in uh, replacement theology, because once God has given that calling to the Jewish nation, He's never taking that calling back again. It is without repentance, and the same principle applies to us as human beings that we were called in the beginning and created by God to have dominion in this realm, in this world, Satan duped us out of it by, by poisoning the mind, by bringing that demonic way of thinking. Satan is actually the one who is able to influence the world. That's why the Bible calls Satan the god of this world. It's not because Satan is so powerful. It's because he's influencing the minds of human beings who are the gatekeepers. Yes. So everything good that happens in the world comes through people. Everything bad that happens in the world happens through people. God constrains himself in such a way that he will not act in the world without us. It's part of his partnership, his agreement, his covenant with us. And Satan is not allowed to act in the world without people. So so it's all coming through people, and it all begins with the mind, which is kind of where we come back to that whole theme of the battlefield of the mind. So you can see how all of this ties together and, and how it creates a new way of looking at what spiritual warfare actually is. It's not just casting out demons. It actually is our calling as children of the light and as sons and daughters of God.
1: Yes, yes, and I like a line that you summed it up in in one line when you said spiritual warfare is about the advancement of the kingdom.
2: Yes. Well, the kingdom is, um, another word for kingdom is dominion. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there that don't like certain charismatics that teach what they call dominion theology. Right. I don't consider myself a dominion theology teacher. However, you if you just make the word dominion a bad word, then you're contradicting the Bible itself. Because this is literally how the how the Bible starts is with God telling man to have dominion. And what is dominion? Another word for it is kingdom. Jesus prayed, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that is what we're doing in spiritual warfare. Is we're not just arbitrarily battling this spirit and that spirit and breaking this curse and that curse, what we are doing is we are advancing the kingdom. That is the end goal. And in order to advance the kingdom, there are many battles that must be fought. All of that, whether it is subtle, as you mentioned earlier, or whether it is dramatic and outward and impressive from from a natural viewpoint, all of it is spiritual warfare, and we need to know how to fight that
1: war yes you know in in reading through so many books and and things that we get in here i I have a a habit of uh taking particular lines or statements and i will write them down and print them out and you know put them on my wall and this is one that i absolutely loved this is one that's on my wall jesus did not perform miracles to prove that he could he performed miracles to prove that we could
2: wow I i love that one too so, so that that may sound a little bit crazy, but but let me just, if I can, take a second. Sure. To say why I why I say that. Okay. So there's there's this story in the Bible where Jesus basically, uh, I think it's in Matthew 12. He heals a man with a withered hand. Then he heals other people: a demonized person, a mute man, a blind person. And then later in the same chapter, he heals um, great multitudes. He heals all of them. Yes. And then in the very next. Uh, In in the same chapter, just a few verses later, uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, show us a sign. Now, that seems crazy. Jesus had just healed everyone in a huge multitude, including very specific and notable miracles. And then the Pharisees come to him and say, give us a sign. It, It seems ridiculous until you realize that what the Pharisees were looking for as proof of Christ's messianic claims was not healing the sick or even raising the dead or opening the eyes of the blind. They were looking for something dramatic like Moses parting the Red Sea or Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Those were the kind of miracles that they were seeking. And Jesus actually addressed this. He said if they would only receive one of those kinds of miracles. It would be the sign of the prophet Jonah. What is that? It's Jesus himself rising from the dead. So Christ's resurrection from the dead was the miracle that was proof of his messianic claims. All those other miracles—what were they about? Well, you see very clearly that what Jesus is doing—we talked about dominion, we talked about kingdom. Yes, kingdom was his major theme. That was what he taught about. But also, he did two things: he taught about kingdom, and he demonstrated kingdom. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He he cleansed the lepers. And so, in fact, not only did he do it and then demonstrate it, but we know that he demonstrated it first. The scriptures tell us plainly that he was a prophet mighty and deed and in word, which even sounds funny to us. We would say word and deed. But the Bible says he was a a prophet mighty in deed and word. Um, In Acts 1, when uh, Luke is introducing the book, he says to Theophilus, all these things Jesus began to do and to teach. So he puts the action before the teaching. And so what was Jesus doing? He was teaching kingdom. And then he was saying, look, guys, this is what kingdom looks like. And this is really important because kingdom, when it comes, it has to look like something. So then Jesus turns to us and he says, As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, raise the dead. Freely you have received, now freely give. So what you see is Jesus is not doing these miracles to prove that he can do them or to prove that he's Messiah or to impress the skeptics, the Pharisees. That's not his purpose. His purpose is to demonstrate what it looks like when a child of God under the power of the Holy Spirit is walking in kingdom dominion. In other words, he's he's demonstrating what he's also teaching, which is kingdom and dominion. And this is for us. Yes. This is the example for us. We are to walk in this. And again, this is what spiritual warfare looks like.
1: Yes. Daniel, when you're teaching this and when you're preaching and you're teaching, does it just like get you so excited?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, when I'm preaching and teaching, I don't have the time to, to get into these fine details. So I just I just wage the spiritual warfare. I don't teach on it very often, but we're in the battle, and we're fighting it, and one of the main ways that we do that is through the proclamation of the gospel. I also talk that about, in, about that in the book, but this is one of the key elements of our spiritual warfare is the proclamation of the gospel with signs and wonders followed.
1: Well, I know. In your meetings, in your crusades, when you're preaching Jesus and the power of the gospel, you actually see on a regular basis many miracles. Can can you just give us a couple examples? Uh, Share with with us and with our listeners a couple of those.
2: I could literally keep you here for the next two days, (laughs) telling you one story after another.
1: Well, we would listen.
2: I went to Africa, and every single crusade we see miracle after miracle after miracle. Of course, everything that you hear about, blind eyes opening, cripples walking. I've even seen... Uh, I'll tell you just this one as a, as an interesting story. I was in a, a city called Sapele in Nigeria, and there was a mother that had come to the meeting with a three-year-old boy. His name was Great, and he was very sick. She brought him to receive prayer because, of course, people know that at our at our crusades we pray for the sick. And so um, the, the crazy thing was that during the service, which, by the way, our services are very long. I mean, our services can last six, eight, even ten hours uh, the people will come and, and the people are standing shoulder to shoulder in crowds of hundreds of thousands for all these hours. Well, during the service, that little boy, that three-year-old boy died. And so uh, the, the mother carried him to a medical tent that we have set up on the field. The doctors examined him, several doctors. They all said that he's dead. There's nothing we can do for you. And she was weeping. She was totally undone, as you can imagine. Yes. It was the the medical guys, they said, why don't you take him to the evangelist for prayer? So that's the faith That's the faith you encounter in Africa. Is the doctors are telling you to take the worst cases to the, the man of God. So she brought this this little child up to the stage. And of course, we have very tight security around there for obvious reasons. Um, some of the bishops said, I'm sorry, we can't let you back here. But they saw the, the tears. They, they examined the boy's body themselves. They saw this child was dead. And so they let this woman come behind the platform and stand right at the steps where I would go down at the end of the meeting leading to my car. And so as I'm going down, this is probably a couple hours later after she's already been ushered behind the platform, I'm walking down the steps. I turn to my right, and there's this woman with this baby, her eyes swollen, tears staining her cheeks. And um, I could tell something was very wrong, but if I'm honest, I didn't know what was wrong. So I kind of made my way over. I tried to listen, but it was so loud it was so chaotic. I didn't know what was wrong, but I laid my hands on the boy and I started to pray. And that mother just dropped the boy and I caught him in my arms. uh, And I realized at that point it was something very, very wrong. Um, I don't know if I completely understood that he was dead. Of course, he was completely limp and cold, but I knew something was very wrong with the boy. So I prayed for about 30 seconds, handed him back over to his mother, got in the car, we drove away. And in my rear view mirror, I could see people just shouting and screaming and jumping. I had no idea what it was. And then the next night, as I pull onto the, the, the field where our event is taking place, the director of the event comes and gets me, and he said, Daniel, I want you to see something. And he brought me back behind the platform, and there was that little boy, little great, running around, playing. And I learned then the whole story that he had been sick, he died, that I handed him back to his mother. He had come back from the dead. But not only was he raised from the dead, but all the sickness was gone, all the weakness was gone. And that mother stood on the platform that night in Sapelli, Nigeria, and testified. So Jesus... Jesus is not only doing miracles. He's not just, you know, healing headaches and back aches or whatever. People are literally being raised from the dead, and this is the world that we live in.
1: Yes, and as you said earlier, in, in another sense, this is a matter of life and death, and sometimes for people actually even physically like that. So, wow. You know what? The, the stories, the testimonies, I mean, it, it builds our faith so much, but, I mean, there's such power in relaying these stories. I, I I listen to you tell them. I, I read the book, and, whew, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to, to take a moment and let it sink in and say, wow, the power of God, the power of the gospel. Mm. Wow, thank you. <laughs> thank you. The
2: power that's available to all God's children. That's the important
1: part. Yes, you know what? Why don't you take just a second right now and speak to those that are listening about that very thing?
2: Yeah, well, again, I think one of the great tragedies in the church world uh, historically is that we have separated the body of Christ into these two groups that we call clergy and laity. In other words, it's the tiniest fraction of the of the church world. We've set them on the platform and said, these are the, the ones that are supposed to do the work of the ministry, and the 99.9% of the rest of the body of Christ is just supposed to sit there and listen and put money in the offering plate and applaud and say amen when appropriate, and this is, I, I believe that this is one of Satan's most wonderful strategies because what he's done is he's basically crippled the vast majority of the body just, who's just sitting there and waiting for the pastors and the teachers and the evangelists and the prophets to do the work. But in Ephesians 4, when it talks about these gifts, it says that their job is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So actually the model that God designed is opposite. If, if the body of Christ were compared to a football team, the fivefold ministry gifts would be the water boys. Our job is just to keep the body, you, the the listener, the person that's just the ordinary Christian, you are the ones that are supposed to be doing the work of the ministry and taking the kingdom of God into all the earth. And so what you have to understand is this is not only available to you, like God will also give it to you if you want it bad enough. This is primarily for you. It's it's not it was never intended to be a few really famous people on platforms doing the work of the kingdom. It was always intended to be the billions of blood washed born again believers like you taking the kingdom of God into all the world and that's why this message is for you you can heal the sick you can cleanse the lepers you can raise the dead you can preach the gospel and and my heart is just to equip you in that and and also I just want to I just want to pray is that okay Donna if I just pray for the listeners Absolutely So father I pray for my brothers and sisters that are listening to this broadcast, because Lord, you know, right where they are, you know, the, the insecurities perhaps that are in their heart, you know, the challenges that they face. Lord, I pray that right now you would just touch them with your spirit, that there would be a a spirit of faith that rises up on the inside of them, Lord, that you would strengthen them from the inside out to be mighty dragon slayers in Jesus name. And Lord, I pray that you'd give them a vision for the world and for the nations and also for their own communities and for their families and for their cities. Lord, use them to bring the kingdom of God in power wherever they are. Lord, teach them. As as you said, uh, David prayed, you teach my hands to war. And Lord, I pray that you would teach their fingers to fight and their hands to make war so that they would be able to advance the kingdom of God, not only out in the world, but in their own hearts, in their own minds, to conquer these dragons and to smash the dragon eggs that, that the enemy has tried to sow into their lives. Lord, I thank you. You said that we are more than conquerors, and Lord, we we accept that by faith, and I pray now that you would give us the courage and the wisdom to walk that out in Jesus' name. I bless every person listening right now with that more than a conqueror and overcoming mentality, and Lord, I thank you that you use them in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: Yes, yes. Daniel, you talk about a story uh, that you call How to Kill Your Pet Dragon. That's a story that you share in the book. What are you talking about there?
2: Well, you know, I actually do this a little bit tongue-in-cheek because there's a, a movie or a show that's called How to Train Your Pet Dragon. Exactly. And so I, I thought I'd write a, a chapter about how to kill your pet dragon. We don't want to be training, nurturing, or coddling these things. We want to kill them. And unfortunately, that's what most people do. These dragons that destroy us are often incubated in our own hearts and minds. The story you're referring to was in the National Geographic 2018. And the title, the headline was, Why an Eight-Foot Pet Python May Have Killed Its Owner. And it tells the story of a man in England who was killed by his yellow African ripe, uh, rock python, I think it was. Um, and the name, ironically, was Tiny. So uh, an eight-foot snake named Tiny. Yes. But anyway, this this snake, you know, the guy had raised it from an egg. And, of course, it was it was part of his family probably. He fed it. He nurtured it. And in the end, it killed him. And I thought, what an appropriate metaphor for the way that the enemy destroys so many people's lives. Um, It was Solomon that said, it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. And if you look at a person who has fallen into temptation or into sin or into bondage, if you trace that great dragon in their life backwards, you will inevitably discover that it started out as something very small. It started out as an egg. And what do I mean by that? It started out as a lustful glance or a thought that wasn't brought into subjection. Uh, it thought it started out as maybe some some bitterness, some unforgiveness. And over time, as that thing is allowed to grow, it becomes a monster. It becomes something that that will literally destroy and decimate a person's life. And so, one of one of the things that I'm saying in this chapter about how to kill your pet dragon is learn to recognize those dragon eggs and smash them when they are still in in their gestation period because if you can learn to do that, you will avoid so much pain. I mean, actually, you know, this book is about spiritual warfare, but a lot of the wars that we fight, a lot of the battles we fight are, in a sense, self-inflicted because we allowed these things to take shape in our lives and to grow. And then we end up battling them, but wouldn't it be so much better if we can learn how to destroy them at the beginning so that we don't have to get embroiled in these battles that, that can destroy our lives and our families and our marriages May God give us the grace to recognize these things and to get them out of our lives. Yes.
1: yes, Amen. And and thank you for that. I mean, learning to recognize something I feel like is so important. But then you also give us weapons. How, you know, okay, we've recognized it now. Now what do we do to combat this? So you give us also some weapons. What are these weapons? Just, I, I know we don't have a whole lot of time. We never have enough time. But if you can name a couple of those, that would be awesome.
2: Sure. Well, uh, we, obviously we don't have a, a lot of time to talk about it, but one of the most obvious is prayer, you know, and, and so we talk about prayer. We talk about how to pray effectively. You know, a, a lot of the teachings on prayer have just made prayer such a complex and myst, uh, mystified and difficult subject that people are kind of afraid of it because no matter what, they feel like they're doing it wrong. But actually, again, the the key to effective prayer is spiritual alignment. So you it, once your spirit is aligned with God, Uh, Submit yourselves to God, James says, then resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So that submission, that internal posture is really the the critical key. It's not the words that you say or the volume at which you say them. It's the internal alignment with the heart of God that brings you into victory. Um, Another one is, you know, I told this story in the uh, book, in a chapter about how to kill your pet dragon. And it's based on a, a book by Jack Kent called There's No Such Thing as a Dragon. And it's this story about this little boy named Billy Bixby who has a dragon appear in his room. He goes down and tells his mother that I have this dragon in my room. It's just a little tiny dragon. But the mother says, Billy, that's impossible. Dragons don't exist. There's no such thing as a dragon. And so to make a long story short, this thing starts growing and growing. And the mother has already said there's no such thing as a dragon. So she just sticks to that story even when the dragon is so big that its, its head is popping out the front door and its legs are out the windows and it's carrying the house around like a turtle shell on its back. And the key in that story, its I know it's a silly, kind of a silly children's story, but the, the principle is really powerful. The way that, in the end of that children's book, they get the dragon to start shrinking is that they admit it exists. Mm. And when the mother, when the family begin to admit that that dragon is real, then it begins to shrink, and they begin to have control over it. And this is this is something that we even observe, for example, in 12-step programs. And, and again, the, those 12-step programs get this from Scripture, that you know, confess your faults to one another that you may be healed. Why? Because there is something powerful in the admission that there is a problem. And once we admit it, once we recognize it, we can begin to battle it. And so these are the kind of principles that I'm giving, how you can take authority over those things. And one of the great spiritual weapons, if I still have a second. You do, absolutely. One, one, of, the, one of the greatest uh, weapons, I call it a secret weapon, is just learning how to cultivate intimacy with God. And I know this doesn't sound that um, outwardly dramatic. It probably doesn't even sound like it has anything to do with spiritual warfare. But there is no person so dangerous to Satan's kingdom as the one who is intimate with God. And so as we learn to cultivate that intimacy with him, to listen to his voice, to obey the, the things that he's speaking to us, to just enjoy him and to enjoy his presence and to spend time with him, many of those battles that we're fighting will actually lose their power over us, just automatically, even without having our attention, just because we've directed our focus to him, we've set our hearts on him, then we begin to get victory over these things. The Apostle Paul talks about this, too. He talks about um, casting down imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So it's not just bad imaginations or, or wicked imaginations. It's things that are exalting themselves against God. What is Paul saying? That that knowledge of God, that that view, that vision, of Christ, needs to be the thing that our hearts are set on. And again, internal alignment is the key. When we're lined up in, in such a way that, our, that everything within us is looking toward Him, a lot of these battles lose their power sort of on
1: their own. Yes, yes. And I like what you said that, you know, just on the surface, or sort of listening to that type of language may not sound like power language to us, but we can guarantee that the enemy knows when you're in the presence of God and when His presence dwells within you. So that is powerful. Yeah, so
2: well, it's very important to see the distinction between what looks outwardly impressive to the natural eyes and what is truly carrying spiritual authority, because very often what, what, what you see is not what's going on. I mean, if you had seen Jesus dying on the cross, you would not have seen uh, what you thought to be a victorious, conquering king. You would have saw, saw what looked to be a criminal bleeding and dying helplessly and naked, however in the spirit that act was the greatest thermonuclear bomb of spiritual warfare that shook the spiritual world from the top of heaven to the bottom of hell to the naturalized it didn't look like that so we have to be very careful when we're talking about about spiritual warfare that we don't confuse what we see with what is actually happening behind the scenes yes yes
1: well that that is great information and that is powerful in itself you know a lot of ministers and a lot of uh, people of god are getting words and asking god what are, what are you saying for this new decade it's a it's a new decade lord speak to us what what is god showing you about this decade
2: well i have one word that's burning in my spirit and it has been since 2017 and it's the word multiply the lord told me in 2017 that he wants to bring a double harvest in this, in this next decade, a decade of double harvest. And, and I have seen, since that word was spoken, I've seen such an incredible just blossoming and raising up of the gift of the evangelist. I just came from from Brazil where I preached in three packed stadiums. I'm talking 60,000, 80,000 and more. Three packed stadiums in about an eight hour time period in two cities. I had to fly in between cities. I mean, this has never happened before in history that God is moving in such a way that, you know, when I go to Africa today and our, our meetings there begin in a couple of days, we will see hundreds of thousands of people being saved. And um, my, my mentor is Evangelist Balki. He went on to be with the Lord just a few months ago. I didn't realize when the Lord spoke to me about the decade of double harvest. I didn't realize that Reinhard Balki was going to die just a few days before the, the beginning of that, of this new decade and yet, you know, Reinhard told me years ago we were preaching together in Germany, and he had a dream. And Reinhard wasn't like a prophetic slot machine. Just you know, he would he didn't just prophesy to hear himself prophesy. As he said the Lord spoke. It, it was like, you better listen yes. because this is real. And I saw him in the morning. He said, Daniel, I had a dream last night. And he was he was mesmerized. You could see his face was still glowing. He said, In fact, I'm not sure if it was a dream or a vision because I, I don't even know if I was asleep or awake. It was so vivid. It was so real. He said, I was projected about 30 years into the future, and I heard two personalities talking. I couldn't see them, but I could hear them. And they were talking about things happening in the world at that time. And th- there was a lot of things they discussed. But the one thing that stood out to Reinhardt was at the end of the conversation, one of the voices said to the other, whatever became of the great pioneer um, uh, evangelist Reinhard Bonnke? And the voice replied, he was just a forerunner. For a whole new generation of Holy Spirit evangelists, and then Reinhardt woke up out of that thing, and so he he told that dream to the crowd that night in the conference, and many times through the rest of his life he would reference this. But here's the thing: the, when the Lord spoke to me about the double harvest, it was this decade, this 2020 through 2030 decade. And Reinhard died just literally days before the beginning of that. And I, I believe in my heart there's even something prophetic about his passing. You know, men like Billy Graham have gone to be with the Lord. T.L. Osborne is gone. Reinhard Bonke is gone. And I believe that just as the scripture says, unless a corn of wheat falls to the earth and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bring forth much fruit. And we see this pattern where God often uses one generation to fulfill the vision, the dream of the previous one. Solomon uh, was able to fulfill what David had envisioned. um, Joshua took the the children of Israel to the promised land after Moses had died. Jesus said to his disciples, these things and greater will you do because I go to the Father. And I feel like we're entering into that season now where everything is about to increase, where there's going to be exponential grace upon the body of Christ to reap the harvest right before the end of the age. And so that's what's in my heart is to multiply. The Lord said to me that this great harvest wasn't going to come through addition but through multiplication what that means to me is that it's not going to be that that I just preach twice as much or have twice as many meetings what it's going to be is that we're raising up a whole generation thousands maybe tens of thousands of holy spirit filled evangelists that are going to go into the world preaching the gospel and bringing the kingdom wherever they go it's going to be the greatest harvest we've ever seen in history and it's already begun and it's it's really exciting this is this is what I feel in my heart it's not just a word from the lord it is a living reality yes
1: Yes, yes. I want to end with one last question here, Daniel. Uh, when when I read this, I was thinking, what an answer you gave to this question and then how that relates to every single person that's listening to this podcast. Daniel, a, a reporter asked you, how do you intend to fill the shoes of a man like Reinhard Bonnke? And what did you say?
2: Well, let me just give a little background Okay. This was years ago. I I actually became the leader of Reinhard Bonnke's ministry 10 years ago. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that. So in the beginning, when I took over from Reinhard Bonnke, I was 28 years old. And you can imagine what that seemed like. I mean, I didn't realize it then because I was 28. But now that I'm older, looking back on that, I think I would have also been pretty skeptical. And so I faced quite a bit of criticism in the early years. And um, so we were in a press conference in South Africa, and one of the reporters stood up in the back and looked at me and asked in a very combative tone. She said, how do you, a young man, expect to fill the shoes of a legend like Reinhard Bonnke? And, um, you know, it was a little bit intimidating, and Reinhard was sitting right there of next course. to me. Of course. And I, I just felt like suddenly that intimidation was touched by the Holy Ghost, and it became courage. And I stood up and I said to her, Ma'am, I have no intention of filling Ryan Habonki's shoes. The only shoes I intend to fill are my shoes because those are the ones God gave me. And I know that if I'm standing in those shoes, there will be grace and there will be supernatural empowerment to fulfill the, the, the call that God has put on my life. And that has been sort of the, the, the theme of, of my life. I'm way out of my depth every single day. And yet I'm walking in the shoes God has given me to walk in and there's grace and there's favor and there's joy it's not a burden. I don't feel overwhelmed. In fact, I probably should feel a lot more overwhelmed than I do, but I don't because I'm walking in the shoes God gave for me. And as you said, for every Christian, if we will, if we will walk in the shoes God has given for us, there will be power and there will be um, provision to do what God has called us to do.
1: Yes. I'm going to ask you to pray for our listeners before we go, Daniel. And I just want to remind everybody right before you pray that Sid will be here at the end of the program to let you know how you can get Daniel's brand new book called Slaying Dragons. Daniel, would you pray for us before we leave?
2: Yes. So, Father, once again, I, I pray for these listeners, Lord, that you would give them grace. Indeed, as we've talked about, that you would help them to fulfill the calling on their lives. Lord, that you would give them courage to step out and to make a difference in their world. Lord, I pray that you would use the scriptures, these books, these resources, even this broadcast today, Lord, to infuse a spirit of wisdom and revelation on the inside of them, that they will be overcomers and they will be more than conquerors as they go out to face every dragon, not only in the world, but within themselves. I bless them today in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.
1: And something that we don't normally do at the end of the program here, Daniel, I would like for all the listeners to join me as we pray for you. So uh, our audio engineer is here and I am here. And every single one of you that are listening, I would like for you to join me in saying, Daniel, We bless you. We bless your team. We bless everyone that goes with you to accomplish what you are accomplishing. We bless the shoes that you are walking in. And Father, right now in Jesus' holy name, we pray for protection for Daniel and his team as they travel and fulfill this mission that you have given them. We pray for health and strength. And Lord, that you would walk with them every step of the way in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Daniel, thank you for being with us.
2: Thank you, Don. it was a
1: joy. All right, we'll see you soon. Okay, bye-bye. And now here's Sid Roth to tell you how you can get Daniel's brand new book, Slaying Dragons. Sid?
0: Daniel Kalinda says every believer deals with spiritual warfare, but sadly, few are equipped. His brand new book, Slaying Dragons, is a must-have for spiritual warfare on any level, from casting out demons, to the battle between our ears. It's easy to lose sight of the big picture as we focus on our everyday struggles, but Daniel teaches that you've been given all you need to win, all. So be sure to get slaying dragons and learn how to slay every dragon you encounter in the world, and in your own life, and in your family's life. Daniel's brand new book, Slaying Dragons, and Daniel's brand new and exclusive teaching session entitled, What I Learned from Reinhard Bunkey About the Supernatural, plus two powerful audio messages by Daniel and Reinhard Bunkey. They're all available for an investment of only 35 US dollars. You can't get this package anywhere else. So be sure to order today. To order, call 1-800-447-2697. Once again, that's 1-800-447-2697. Or go to our website at sidroth.org. That's S-I-D-R-O-T-H dot Be sure to ask for offer number 9683. That's offer number 9683.